0: Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other, Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, or they are lively. And give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, And the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And what a great story. I'd like to speak to you from that theme and this text on the subject, labor and delivery. God bless you. Please be seated. The Bible describes salvation with various metaphors such as sowing seed. It is planted, watered, God gives the increase. There is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our repentance, water, baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, salvation. There's a tabernacle plan, not just a metaphor, it's a true type of the brazen altar, the laver of water, the holy place, and the most holy place. It is there the Lord said, I will meet with you there at the mercy seat inside the most holy place. Jesus said that salvation is like the wind blowing. And Jesus said that salvation is like the normal, the natural birth process. It is like the new birth. A metaphor compares something that you may not know a lot about to something that you do know more about. And to understand the thing that is being illustrated, like salvation, you need to understand the illustration uh, that is being used in the Bible. Metaphor compares two completely different things to reveal something about both of those things, but in the Bible, to reveal a spiritual truth. Oftentimes, metaphors compare something that is abstract with something that is concrete. John 635, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Obviously, he's not the bread of life, uh, but he gives that metaphor. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine, and you are the branches. And when Jesus made these statements about himself, he tapped into the power of using a metaphor for us to use something that is known to understand something that at that time is not yet known. He compared himself to bread, to a shepherd, to a light, to a vine. It allowed us to understand something about our relationship with him and our nature, uh, his nature, in a fairly simple manner. So the metaphor of salvation in the Bible, as I mentioned, is called the new birth, the new birth. John chapter 3, verse 1, familiar passage of Scripture to many of us, but I want to just read through it to see what Jesus told Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles, these miracles, that thou doest except God be with him. So he asked this question, who are you? We know who we are. Who are you? And Jesus answers him. It sounds like he's not even answering the question. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we're talking about birth. Jesus is comparing salvation to birth or birth to salvation. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit. Now he's going to define a little bit about what this new birth is like to be born again or born from above. You have a natural birth, but no matter how good that first birth was, it will never get you in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thinks his first birth is pretty good. He's a ruler of the Jews, he sits on the Sanhedrin, that 70, a group of 70 men who make religious governing decisions. But that birth, Jesus says, will not get you in the kingdom of God. And except a man be born of water and of the spirit, cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. I want to just pause. It's not part of my message. But for many years, I've really felt strongly to teach and preach on this idea of that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The best that flesh can produce is more flesh. It might be smart flesh, talented flesh, but it's just flesh. And anything that is generated out of ego or ambition or the concoction of a human being, it just produces more of the same, more flesh. But that which is born or produced by a spiritual unction, by spiritual birth, produces something at a totally different level, uh, like a new species, is what's probably the best way to describe what Paul said. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, like a totally new thing. So Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus, and he's talking, he's using, he's using the metaphor of natural birth uh, to explain spiritual birth. So I know this is not uh, a class in childbirth tonight. So I'll keep it at a little bit of a high level. But in natural birth, there is the breaking of the water as the baby emerges from the womb into the world. In natural birth, there is the birth of breath when the baby breathes, you know, for the very first time. God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. Uh, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Second, Adam, referring to Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. In other words, spirit in the New Testament is, is usually pneuma, like pneumatics, like breath, like the wind that blows wherever God wants it to. Pneuma, breath, life. That's how we're born again of water and of the spirit, like breath. But a baby is not born until it enters the world in a natural birth setting by water and by spirit or by breath. In natural birth, before a baby can be born, there must be labor. All three of our boys were born by Caesarean section, but in natural birth, uh, the birth that is described in the Bible, it is a a labor pain. Now, as I started studying this, I felt inspired to teach on this, and uh, it's not tied to Christmas, it's not tied to Thanksgiving, but it is tied to what God is doing in our church right now. And I feel that as I say that very strongly, the word youth, the Bible often uses the word travail in the King James to describe the labor that occurs as a woman is giving birth. And as I started studying this, uh, I knew this was in the Bible. I've read my Bible through many times like many of you have, but I was struck by how many times the Bible refers to uh, as a woman with child. Uh, labor, travail. It's fitting that the Hebrew word for travail is writhe, W R I T H E, like to writhe in pain. And any woman who's given birth naturally might say that that's a really good description of what labor pains feel like. Now, I want to set the record straight that men do not understand labor pains. I guess, unless they've had a kidney stone, that I've been told. But that's as close as you're going to get for a man to experience what a woman does when she experiences labor pains in childbirth. But there is a scripture uh, in Jeremiah 30 when the Lord talks about men feeling such anguish of soul that it is like the pain that a woman feels when she is in labor about to give birth. Uh, I heard a voice of trembling, Jeremiah 30. 30 verse 5 of fear not of peace, ask now and see whether a man doth travail with child. You know, like that's a dumb question. Men don't travail with child. But he said, I why do I see every man with his hands on his legs as a woman in travail and their faces are turned into paleness? He's describing the anguish that a man facing the judgment of God is feeling. And it is like labor pains, for the day is great, so that none is like it. Even the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble in the Bible is that time of tribulation. but He shall be saved out of it. So there, there are lots of examples of childbirth in the Bible. Uh, you may remember that Rachel in Genesis 35, she journeyed from Bethel. And not too far from Ephrath. She travailed and had hard labor. It came to pass while she was in her lab, our labor that the midwife, so now we have in the Bible the introduction of a midwife, someone who is going to help deliver this baby. And fear not, you know, the midwife tells her, you're going to have this baby also. This is going to be your second child. And it came to pass as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin, I believe, the son of my sorrow, and Benjamin, the son of my strength. In the Bible, Tamar, in Genesis 38, gave birth to twins, and that's a very intriguing story. Ichabod's mother died in childbirth uh, also, and numerous places in the Bible, the word travail is used in a figurative manner, not of a literal woman in labor pains, but the travail of soul going through a time of anxiety or pressure or trial that you would feel this this terrible feeling of travail. Now I know you're already thinking about this, maybe maybe you are. Now we talk about travail of soul, praying, travailing in prayer. Uh, that's part of what I'm teaching tonight that that travail of soul is like a labor pain and it may be from anguish, maybe from heartache in your life, or it may actually be the travail for souls or travail for revival, a travail for an answer prayer that is deep in your soul as a woman who is travailing to give birth to a child. Uh, this, this phrase in the Bible, when I mentioned about travail, as a woman in travail, that exact phrase or similar phrases are mentioned nine times in the book of Jeremiah alone, and two times in the book of Micah. So as I said, as I started studying this and running references, the Bible talks about travail and labor pains quite a bit, literally, and then in the comparison to what people feel when they are travailing in prayer or even travailing in pain. This idea of, of this metaphor of birth and salvation. But, you know, because this is a metaphor, and natural birth is compared to spiritual birth, I felt like I needed to go read a little bit, since I've never had a baby, uh, about this to refresh my mind. So, thank God for Google, Brother Google, and Cleveland Clinic. What I read was, as your pregnancy begins to wrap up, your body will prepare for labor and delivery. This is the process through which your baby will be born. Labor is often different for each person. Some have quick labor. Some have long, difficult labors. Other people may even experience labor that stalls or stops leading to medical intervention. Three stages of labor. And I told you I'll keep this at a relatively high level. Early labor from twelve can last from 12 the 24 hours, and then after on the first child, and maybe eight to 10 for subsequent births. So there's that early labor that can last for, for a long time, and it varies greatly, and I'm not trying to give, again, a lesson on childbirth. And then active labor, where your contractions become even stronger during active labor is your body prepares to give birth. The second stage of labor is when you push this is the phase of your labor when you will actually give birth to the baby. And then the third phase is after birth. And I'll just leave that with a single word. The Bible speaks about new birth. It refers to the process by which a person is saved. It is they're saved, born of water and of the spirit. It doesn't directly refer to the role of the church. And I'm very careful in teaching to not misapply Scripture or to try to interpret Scripture that was not intended to say something. But this is so much in the Bible, and this metaphor of birth, that I believe the church plays an active role. You know, Jerusalem is the mother of us all. The church would be considered like the mother of the church. The Bible does speak of travail as labor that brings something to birth. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes to people that he had birthed in the gospel. And as I read commentary about this again, study this passage through the years, Galatians 4 and 19, my little children of whom I travail in birth again till Christ be formed in you. In other words, Paul is saying, when you came to God, I travailed in birth for you to be saved. And I believe that when you are involved in, I'm going to call it spiritual parenting, bringing a person to God. In Atlanta West, we always say there are three I's. And you intercede in prayer, right? You invest in the relationship, and you invite that person to church, to a Bible study, to a dinner. But we know that there has to be a spiritual component to salvation. That it is not just a matter of giving a card when you took two, although that is can be powerful. It is not just giving them a scripture, although the word of God is powerful. And I'll mention that more a little bit later. But we realize that there is a war going on. That the God of this world is blinded the minds of them that believe not. They're not just in neutral waiting for you to invite them to receive the Holy Ghost. Their soul is bound. They're in darkness. They're blinded. And it is prayer. It is intercessory prayer. And I'm going to say the labor of prayer. Paul said, I'm going to travail again in birth, in birth again. Now, the word here that Paul uses is an interesting word. Uh, until you take the shape of Christ. So these are already Christian people. He has travailed in birth for them to come into the church. But now they're being deluded. Now they're being taken away by these Judaizers, false teachers, who are telling the Galatians, you've got to go back under the law. It's law plus Christ that equals salvation. And I don't want to do a Bible study on the book of Galatians, but he said, you did well. You ran well. Who did hinder you? You begun in the spirit. Are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? So Paul is like a spiritual mother in this relationship that he travailed in birth for that church to be born. But now he sees them drifting away, being their faith being undermined. And so he tells them, I'm travailing in birth again till Christ be formed in you. Amen. The process in the Greek, I don't even want to try to pronounce the Greek word. The process whereby the fetus develops into an infant. That is a Greek word that Paul used uh, that Christ would be formed in us. And again, these are already believers. So he's not talking about initial salvation But he is talking about travailing. So I want to go back to Egypt. Everybody ready to go back to Egypt? The book of Exodus opens, chapter 1. You know, Joseph is there. He gets everybody down, 70 souls. And for a while, everything is great. The Pharaoh that knows Joseph dies. There arises a Pharaoh in Egypt who knew not Joseph. So now favored house guests become servants, become slaves. And when you read through this story, um, these Israelites, they multiply greatly. They don't believe in having 1.8 child. They believe in having children. They believe in having their quiver full of them. That would come later, but that's scripture. The Bible said the children of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. They were everywhere. Now there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, look, look around. The people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. There's a lot of them, and they're very strong people. This is scary. He becomes super intimidated by this. He says, let's deal really shrewdly with them, the new King James says, and lest they multiply. And if there's a war, that they would ally themselves and join our enemies and fight against us and make us go out of the land. You know, they would kick us out of Egypt. So they set taskmasters over there. We'll tell you what we'll do. We'll make their life miserable. And so we're going to stop this rapid growth. Think about the book of Acts while you're, I'm reading this verse. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them and with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh, supply cities, Python and Ramses. But then the Bible says that this resistance created revival, right? Growth, not revival, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And that's why I said, I want you to think about the book of Acts and the church because persecution did not stop the church, just like affliction did not stop the rapid growth of Israel in Egypt. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. This is Exodus 1.14 now. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field and their service in which they made them serve with rigor. But that didn't work. So now, we're going to have to kill some people. We're going to have to kill some babies. So this is the story. Uh, Then the king of Egypt, Exodus 1 and 15, uh, you can follow along here, spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra, the other was Puah. We read this in our text. He said to them, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, see that when you see them on the birthstools, ready to give birth, and that word in the King James and, In the original is an interesting word and it's probably the best uh, interpretation. They're getting ready to build, uh, give birth. If that child is born, if it's a boy, we want you midwives to kill that baby right then. You think about giving your life as a midwife to help bring babies into the world. And now you're being ordered by the king To kill the babies that you helped birth. So, this is a terrible thing, right? Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. There's a time to disobey the law, but it's when it violates the word of God not just when it serves your pleasure. So the king, in verse 18, he wants an explanation. Why is this happening? Calls him in. Why have you done this? Save the male children alive. And they give an answer to the king. You can read this and study this. They do not lie, but they're both true. One, they will not kill these baby boys, but there's a reason that, that they're not necessarily even there when these babies are born. The midwife said to Pharaoh, well, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Or they are lively. They give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, I told you I was not going to do the Christmas story. But when Mary gives birth to Jesus, there is no mention of a midwife in that story, which would refer to untimely birth. They're in Bethlehem. They're not home Maybe they don't even know anyone who could serve as a midwife, but maybe Mary's also a lively mother, right? So these midwives are not lying. They're intentionally not killing baby boys. And uh, the Hebrew women, they say, are very lively. They're strong. They're fit. And uh, they're not like the Egyptian women who live cushy lives and soft and they're not tough and they're not fit. These, these. Egyptian wives, you know, it's implied by these midwives, their, their birth, their labor is really difficult and long and slow and can't give birth to the babies. And But these Hebrew women, when they get ready to deliver a child, their labor is fast because they're lively women. And then God blesses these midwives and provides households for them. And then this is not part of my message, but I have to finish it. This is when Pharaoh says, okay, if you midwives are not going to cooperate, we're going to take things into our own hands and we're going to kill every baby boy. We're going to throw them in the river. And then it leads to the birth of Moses and the deliverance of the children of Israel. When Israel was in this land of Egypt, this foreign land, uh, the Bible says that the people were mightier, right? And they were afflicted, and the more they were afflicted, the more they grew, and uh, that they multiplied and grew exceedingly. And I put three verses in my notes about how they kept growing while they were opposed. And, and this is really not my, the main part of my message, but recently I've mentioned and I've done some leadership training about revival and resistance that they coexist. And the greater the revival, the greater the resistance. So don't expect for resistance to go away in your life or for the church. But just as it was in Egypt, when there is resistance, you just get ready. God will make sure that the revival always overcomes the resistance. And he'll actually use the resistance to advance the revival. It should give you faith and not fear to know that Satan hates what God is doing in us. Amen. So here here's where the message goes. I want God to help us be a lively church in the context of these lively Hebrew moms. Amen. Uh, in, my, in my ministerial experience, 45 years, I've seen churches where months and even years would go by, no one received the Holy Ghost. I've seen seasons in our church where it seemed very difficult for people to receive the Holy Ghost in the past 28 years. When I first came in in January of 1996, several people received the Holy Ghost right away, and then it just stopped. Because healthy churches reproduce It's like healthy people do in most cases. And that's not trying to make, draw medical conclusions for healthy and having babies, right? But I, I've been to churches where it just seems so easy for people to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I've seen it here where it was like that. And I will tell you that right now, I feel like it is easy for people to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost at our church. Now, in the Bible, there's some scriptures, and I'll get to this later, that it's like someone was brought to the birth. It's right there. People are praying, but they don't break through. They don't receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And there's many, many factors. I'll give some qualifying factors that I have in my notes. First of all, if if a person is really hungry, for God, and obeys the gospel, they can receive the Holy Ghost anywhere. In a non-apostolic church, in their car, at home, wherever they are. They can even receive the Holy Ghost in a dead Pentecostal church. But who would want that? So there's that. And there's also, you know, a spiritually powerful church, a lively church, you understand The metaphor, a lively church, a lively church cannot force a stubborn person to submit their will to God. And I've shared this with you before. Many years ago, I called Brother Robert Trapani. He's gone to be with the Lord now. was dealing with something early in my ministry here. And he said, you know, Brother Johns, if it's the devil, no problem. We can cast the devil out. But if it's a personality, we've got problems. You can't cast a personality out. So you can pray and there can be power. But if a person just doesn't want to be saved, you can't make them be saved. You can pray and God will bring conviction. I recently just referred to my grandfather. People were praying and he couldn't sleep at night. He was under so much conviction. He was miserable Finally, I guess he just said, okay, God, I surrender. Can't take it anymore. There's that, right? Amen. And we recognize the power of the Bible and the witness of a believer. Our goal is not, you know, we don't think that people are just going to walk in the door and with no knowledge of the scripture, just automatically be saved. But I've seen people come to God with very little understanding, but great hunger. Amen. Amen. So I'm giving some qualifications like fine print that this is not a perfect science that if we're powerful that everybody has to receive the Holy Ghost. Or if we're dead, nobody can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But my point is the same. I believe it is the will of God for every church to be a lively church. For Atlanta West to be a lively church. There's a scripture Hezekiah says this in 2 Kings 19.3. It's not about birth really, it's about the trouble they're in. They say Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. His mom has been in labor. She is worn out. And when it's time to give birth, she just doesn't have the strength to deliver that child. And I hope you get the metaphor, the comparison. But God help us as a church that when a hungry soul comes here and they're looking for an environment, an atmosphere of power, that they can easily come into the kingdom of God, that the church doesn't have the power to bring them to birth. Tragic. And again, I I wouldn't try to theologically prove every sub-point about this, but, but I can tell you that there's so much truth in this and reality of what I've experienced in church life and leadership. Amen. So we can be and we should be a lively church where labor and delivery is a healthy process. Isaiah 66, it's a very interesting passage. Uh, It's referring to the rapid development uh, of Judah, and it it may have implications of the church age because Gentiles are mentioned, but Isaiah 66 and 5. And I want to just claim this. Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, cast you out for my namesake said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city of voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Now that's fast. And the Lord is saying that something has developed so quickly that it is like a woman who didn't even have any labor pains that she had that baby so quickly. Now this is just, he's referring to what would be an imagery, right? A metaphor. Before she even had pain. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion. Pardon me, this is the New King James. Uh, I said living, New Living Translation. So it just dawned on me, right? I'm gonna start over in verse eight. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? What about Israel? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. That's a lively people. That's a lively church. And then the Lord said, Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery? If it's up to God, he's not going to bring a person in, in touch with his spirit and with his truth. and Let that person just stay there and never be delivered. It says the Lord, shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All you who love her, rejoice with joy with her all you who mourn for her. In other words, you've seen how it was. She was barren, but now things have changed. Now it looks like babies are just being born like they were in Egypt. Among the Israelites, they were growing exceedingly and multiplying. Can you imagine how Pharaoh and his people were astounded and confounded by the explosive population growth of Israel and Egypt? Egypt like the exponential growth of the early church in Acts. So I want to give some practical application to how I believe we can be a more lively church. And I could preach on all these points a lot, but I'm going to be more concise. First, you got to preach. Preach the truth. You know, a prophet prophesying to dry bones Preaching to the wind, preaching to something that doesn't exist, and preaching it into existence because of the power of the word of God. For God said, let there be, and there was. It was by God's word that everything that is was created. Things that are were created by things that are not. Something tangible was created by something intangible and spiritual. So you believe the truth, you love the truth, and you preach the truth. And that's not always by a guy called a preacher from a pulpit. That may be across a table in your living room or on the phone. But truth is powerful. Amen. It has life in itself like the seed of the word of God. And I have observed this, that if you do not believe the truth, you cannot convey it with conviction. Many years ago, I was at a, at a camp, and I heard somebody preaching. They were actually preaching on holiness. I was just sitting there with a group that I brought from the college. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me. He doesn't believe that. I don't know why I felt that. 20 years later, I knew why I felt that then. And I can't go into that story. But I know this, that if you're just saying words, if you don't believe it, if you don't love it, it's not going to have the conviction that changes the heart. So you got to preach. Amen. Praise God. The Word of God has incredible powers. Quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That verse, Hebrews 4.12. The Bible said in 1 Peter 1 and 12, that we preach the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Preaching is powerful, and I don't mean just words that Daryl John says because I'm Daryl Johns. It is the Bible that has so much power, and the gospel is something that is said, preached, proclaimed, declared, not just lived out silently. That is not the gospel. The gospel is in word, and it is in power. Amen. So, in church, just like you're doing tonight, preach with the preacher. Amen. Somebody that's a guest, my goodness, everybody here believes that. Amen. I've already talked about Bible studies and the word of God. Then pray. Pray. We're going to be a lively church. We need powerful prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer. Of a righteous man availeth much. I jotted a note in church Sunday. Call it just I wrote down decibel. You know because the Bible does say to shout unto God with a voice of triumph. And Jericho's walls fell with the shout. So it's not just about the emotion or the volume. But just go through your Bible and think about that sound of a rushing mighty wind. That filled all the house. So prayer. And prayer with fasting brings power. Prayer with fasting brings power. And then in the context of a, of a corporate worship service, there is power in praise. God inhabits the praise of people, and I've watched that when praise goes up to God, we feel the presence of the Lord and the affirmation of God saying, this is my beloved son and daughter and whom I am well pleased. God's favor rests on his people. But when a sinner is sitting in the presence of God, that same power that comes down on you with favor comes down on them with conviction. When Peter is preaching, those, those unsaved people are pricked in their heart. They feel the conviction of their sin. Preaching brings that, praise brings that kind of power, and we are worshiping God. Something really happens that is spiritual. And I, you know, the weapon of praise and Jehoshaphat and the ambushments that God said. Praise is not just noise and word, and we're not just interested in generating, you know, some kind of a emotion here. We believe in the power of praise. Amen. So important, praise. And praise and altar services should be filled with some, some joy, and I'll get to that joy after prayer. But, you know, a lot of times in a church service, I've been in, they sing it up, sing it down, preach it up, preach it down. And by the time you get to the altar service, people are hungry, tired, sunk out, emotionally drained, and they don't have anything left for the altar. My brother, Billy Cole, taught me and probably many other people that the altar should be a place of power. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes, but the altar was a place of death, but it was a place of power. When there was sacrifice, the fire of God fell and consumed the sacrifice. So altars are places of death, but they're places of power. And altars are places of joy. I wanted to give you this scripture from the words of Jesus, John 16, 21. He just tells us what happens, and he's given an example when he's taken away and uh, teaching his disciples in that, that long passage, you know. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. And intercessory prayer, doing the work of the gospel and the ministry, sometimes it's like that, folks. You're like, you're ready. You just I want to see a baby, right? But for a woman in the pains of labor, of travail, There is sorrow. That's a time of pain, of giving birth. But, Jesus said, as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being, that a man child, the King James says, has been born into the world. She forgets all about nine months, morning sickness, labor pains, Trouble all the things that go With that labor because now This is what she was created By God to do one of her purposes In the earth procreation Now she's done something that has meaning And purpose and value And now this baby is born What pain And so our Altars cannot just Always end down In pain In death we need to see Some babies born Some people delivered some healings, some signs and wonders. And then we need to say, look what God has done. We were in the prayer room that we're going to have in the new building. We're in private prayer. We're in corporate praise. Now we're in the altar, and look what God is doing. So there's preaching, there's prayer, there's praise. And there's power. All the alliteration makes for a good sermon, right? This is where power is actually in my notes and Billy Cole and all of that. So let me just say a couple practical things, a few practical things. When it's time to pray, pray. I've been in enough church services when I was not in charge. And I know the temptation to mentally leave even though you haven't really left yet. That's just natural. But don't think that the devil isn't excited to help you think about where you're going and what you're going to do and distract you. So I just want to encourage you, and I'm talking to myself, that we want to be laser-focused on labor and delivery. If a business never has a point of sale, If they never sell anything, they will go out of business. And it's really irked me for years that people will say, we had great church. Which Usually, what's the next thing they're going to say? Go ahead. No preaching. Well, I think great church is no singing, all preaching. You know, not really. Just kidding. But great church to me is that someone's name was written in the Lamb's book of life. If we shouted, wonderful. If there is a great move of God and all the saints were blessed, wonderful. And I don't think that the greatest revival is supposed to take place inside the church. It's really outside the church. We come to get equipped so we can go and evangelize the world. That's really how it should be. But, but when we're here and we are praying and we're believing God, then we need to engage in this labor and delivery process so that people can be saved. So, that's not the time to disengage the church. I'm, I'm a little over time here. Come to the altar. Move to a place of prayer. Look around for people who need, to be prayed, who need prayer. A brother, a sister, a guest. Pray with them. Maybe you see them across the sanctuary and you just start praying for them. You are in labor for their soul. It is not passive prayer. It is powerful prayer. And I've told this before, but as a teenager and the choir had to sit on the platform because our church was full at that time. And I just remember identifying somebody that was a guest and I would just start praying for them. and, And in my mind, seeing them come to the altar and it didn't happen every time. But it helped me to engage in prayer for that person. And I believe God worked and answered those prayers. Isn't that something? Prayers of a teenager. So pray with people. And if you're praying with the guests to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, please stand in front of them. Or you can talk to them. You don't have to be caught up in the third heaven. You can talk to them. Ask them their name. Ask them what they need prayer for. They're probably not going to save the Holy Ghost maybe a million other things. Pray with them about what's on their mind, what they're feeling right then. And if they show spiritual hunger, you may stop them after a while. Have you ever received the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues? And I have a whole notes, many notes on altar services. I can't do that right now. But the point of need is really big here. I don't like to just say, oh, what's your point of need? But I wanna know, is there something I can pray with you about? And I'm gonna start where they are. And lead them to a place of prayer. I think it's important that you don't have one person in each ear competing for who's saying this, let go, turn loose, hold on, all those Pentecostal cliches through the years. Shake them like they're, you know, at a massage therapy or a chiropractor clinic. That's not really, you know, you may feel excited, and I'm not trying to stop that, but I've seen some crazy things in my life. We defer to ministers. We defer to the altar team. We defer to the person who actually brought that person to church. They have the relationship. Don't butt in and kick them out of the way if that person has a relationship with them. If you see something that looks weird, sounds weird, isn't right, get a pastor. Get an elder in our church. We'll try to address that in a discreet way. We really try to have women praying with women, men praying with men. I pray with the lady. I'm going to lay hands on her head. And all of these other things that we can do that helps. Amen. Please stand. So I ask myself this question. What kind of church do we want to be? I want to be a passive, weak, drained and barren church. A church where children come to the birth. And there is not strength to bring forth, as Hezekiah said in 2 Kings 19.3. Do we want to be that kind of church? Or it seems like it's nearly impossible for people to get what they need from God, whether it is salvation or healing, but I'm focused mainly on salvation right now. Or do we want to be the kind of church that are like those women, those Hebrew women, that they are so lively, before before a preacher could even get there and lay hands on them which is not always necessary they already received the holy ghost in fact in fact in the bible in the book of acts I don't even see an altar call there is not one peter's preaching they're convicted what shall we do there's actually dialogue i don't know how 3000 were saved Cornelius' household, while Peter yet preached the word, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them that heard the word. I didn't see an altar call there at all. Disciples of John in Acts 19, Acts 8, the revival in Samaria. I'm not against altar calls, but just a few weeks ago, I felt like, you know what, we've got a lot of people who are not coming to the altar, so today, I really felt led of the Lord, we're gonna take the altar to them. But, but if you do that and you institutionalize that, that becomes just as much a rut some other thing. So, you know, we don't want to do that. But my point is, we want to be so lively spiritually that we have prayed and created an environment of praise and the preach word of God, the conviction of the Holy Ghost when that person repents of their sins, maybe even before they've been water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. They're like, wow, that was fast. Well, they were hungry. We were ready. God gave them the gift. Never can earn it, right? They repented. They got it all out of them. They didn't just say a little prayer, but they really repented. turned from their sins. That can happen in a moment or it might take them an hour or a week. You just don't know. You can't control that. and You shouldn't manipulate it. You can feel it when they've just let go of those sins and they're ready to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And usually I'm not going to lay hands on a person while they're repenting. Until they're ready to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it just depends. Amen. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Jesus said, the joy of birth makes you forget the pain of labor. That's the kind of church we want to be. If you're able to come to the altar, please do. If you've got kids in chips, they're probably begging for you to deliver them right now. Amen. I feel a great hunger in my spirit for God. I have a great hunger in my spirit for a revival where people are born into the kingdom of God, a powerful Holy Ghost revival that shakes this city. But it's got to start with us being lively spiritual mothers who are spiritually fit and able to bring to birth and deliver spiritual children into the kingdom of God. Let's lift our voices now and let's open our hearts to God. Let's present ourselves a living sacrifice to God holy, acceptable unto Him which is our reasonable servant.